Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You're listening to Justice, a podcast exploring all areas of the justice system, with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. This week I speak to Michael Spur, Chief Executive of His Majesty's Prison and Probation Service from 2010 to 2019. In this episode, I reflect on Michael's 36 years working in the justice system, from the appalling conditions he witnessed in the 80s and 90s to the changes that have taken place and changed the justice system into what we recognise today. Hi Edwina, I'm Michael Spur. I worked in prisons and probation for 36 years. Um, I was a prison officer, a prison governor, um, and ended my career as the chief executive of the National Offender Management Service, then then became the prison and probation service from 2010 to 2019. So that means, doesn't it, that you were actually in charge of running the whole prison service in England and Wales? I was responsible for the whole of the prison service and the probation service in England and Wales from 2010 to 2019, yeah. Quite a big job. Uh, So we'll get on to that in a minute. But I'm interested to know, because you started your career, didn't you, um, sort of coming in as a young officer and then sort of rose to the top, if you like. So uh, I'm interested to know from you why you decided to become a prison officer in the first place? Well, and I've shared this story a number of times. I I went to Durham University and my college, St Chad's College, is right next to the cathedral. And my room in the first year, in fact, my room every year, but certainly the first and the third year, uh, didn't look over the cathedral. It looked over the opposite way towards the river and over the prison. And I could see prisoners exercising from my college room. And I used to pass the prison every day because I did economics as a degree. And the economics department is literally next door to the prison. And I never thought once about the prison service or joining the prison service. But when I came to go for a chat about careers, um the career advisor was a Cyrenian, and the Cyrenians were a local charity who provided support to offenders leaving Durham Jail and provided housing. And at the time, I was running a youth club for young people in Durham, and he said, I'd have thought about going in uh, to the uh, prison system, actually to work in a borstal with young people. And I thought, that sounds interesting. And I began to think about it and looked at it. And they were advertising at the time about management with a social purpose. And I thought, I want to do management. And that sounded something that could be really quite a good good thing to move into. So I applied, went round Durham Prison, which was the first prison I ever went into, which didn't have young people, but had a very overcrowded, sort of busy local prison sort of vibe. And 
Um, I decided I'd apply and I was successful. And I didn't go and work with young people, which is what I wanted to do. I went to Leeds Prison as a prison officer. I wanted to become an assistant governor, but if you were under 24 in those days, you had to become a prison officer first before you could become an assistant governor. So I went to Leeds Prison as a prison officer in 1983. And I've been privileged to work in a system that indeed was an opportunity to to, to work in management in a and with a social purpose and feel very privileged that throughout my career, I always felt that I was working somewhere where you could make some real difference to people's lives, however difficult it was. And obviously, you know, the prison service has changed, hasn't it, quite a lot since since the 80s. But how was it when you first went in, other than well, difficult and challenging, which it always is, but the specific challenges aren't there today that will be different to how they were in the 80s? There are challenges at every time. But there were, it wasn't a great place to be in prison in the 1980s. I mean, I joined a service that was then uh, grossly overcrowded, even though there were only 40, 42,000 prisoners. Uh, the places weren't there for them. So Leeds Prison, where I worked, um, was a prison for about 560, I think, holding 1,250. Three prisoners to a cell, um, no toilet in the cells, so just buckets. Your job as a prison officer, my landing had 136 prisoners on it for three prison officers. And when we unlocked in the morning, the first thing you did was every prisoner came out to the sluices to put their buckets down the sluices. Um, it wasn't a pleasant experience. There was hardly any um, activity for the prisoners. Certainly the remand prisoners, the unconvicted prisoners, which was my wing, A wing, didn't have any work. They were in their cell. Um, all the time with no educational work, just coming out for exercise for an hour a day. Um, and the prison ran very um, well, in, 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 very in, with a very clear routine, and prisoners complied. Um, but uh, the conditions were very poor. It was a pretty harsh place as well. You stepped out a line. And there was a sort of understanding that prisoners didn't step out of line. And, and, uh, and if there were, there was always a risk of uh, unauthorized punishment, beatings, if you like, which were which are happening, which uh, which went on. There was it was a different world, a much less decent world where people were not treated as individuals. It was very much treated as a as a group. Was it much more um, military in its style? Because people have often talked about that sort of military hangover. Th there was much more of a military feel. The the there were more staff who'd who'd been uh, around in the military. A lot more people had joined the service in those days who'd been either in the forces or at some point had done um, in the 1950s sort of national service. Uniforms with caps, sometimes you would see sort of, it was seen as a, a sort of um, a more military approach than, than today. And the expectation was that prisoners would comply um, with with the, the, the routines and that there was a, a pretty harsh response if prisoners didn't comply. I mean, the whole way that that was, was done was shown up in that famous 1980s TV series, Strange Ways, which showed sort of prison discipline. You know, you said the wrong word, you're before a governor, there's harsh punishments. And people, a lot of the time, hark back to that as, you know, those were the days where we had control, etc. But actually, you had a falseness about control. During the 1980s, there were regular riots in prisons because prisoners really didn't, um, I mean, they complied uh, for most of the time. 
But when things became over the top from their perspective, they responded collectively with riot. And there were numerous riots through the 1980s. We generally recall the Strange Ways riot in 1990 as being a huge, big um, uh, impact on the system, which it was, but that wasn't the only riot in 1990. There are a whole set of riots around that time. I mean, I'm talking predominantly about the male system. The, the, the women's system was then, as it is now, still a very small part of the prison system. Most people in prison, as you know, are men. Um, and But there were riots, and there were in the, in, the, um, in the male system. I remember going, after I'd become an assistant governor, to, a, um, uh, to Gloucester Prison, where there'd been a, a big fallout with the Prison Officers Association, um, they'd been locked out. The prison was being run by governors. Prisoners were on the roof. We then had a range of riots when prison officers um, refused to undertake overtime that year. One prison, North High Prison on the south coast, was burned to the ground that time. Um, there were uh, riots in uh, a number of the high security, what we now call high security prisons, dispersal prisons then, um, famous riots, I mean, before I joined uh, Wormwood Scrubs in 1979 at Hull, um, really serious violence that was operating. Um, and the system was overcrowded. We were using army camps at one point. I worked in an army camp which had been set up with army personnel to look after the prisoners because there was no room in the prisons in the 1980s. Sorry, you said the population was 40, around 40,000. It was in its 40-odd thousand. And yeah. today it's obviously over... 80,000, isn't it? So we're talking yes. about when the prison population was 50% smaller. It was, but of course it depends on what places you've got. We've, we've many fewer prisons in those days to the number of prisons we've got today. We've built a lot of prisons yeah. from the 1990s onwards and a lot of places. We've expanded a lot of our prisons. We've not only built prisons, but prisons that were routinely sort of built for 500 are now today holding over a thousand so sorry to interrupt you um the sort of overcrowding issue i imagine in my simple mind it's a case of maths isn't it obviously sort of people and spaces but at the same time it's to do with legislation isn't it and if you have a government that is creating more laws and more laws that can be broken and punishable by a custodial sentence then Somehow the left hand needs to speak to the right hand, doesn't it? There's truth in that. Clearly, you've got um, the prison population has grown because of decisions taken by Parliament, by ministers. And to some degree, that's more laws, but much more it's been about um, higher sentences for, uh, for, for, um, for the offences that are committed. And there's been a, um, a very clear increase in sentence lengths over the time that I've been around the criminal justice system. I, mean, I pointed out, and and sentence lengths, much to, I think, to the, pub, the, the public don't really get this at all, but there is no question that we have the harshest level of sentencing that we've had since the Prison Commission was created in 1962. Um, it's, it, it is much harsher sentencing today than it's been previously. And that's been by design and legislation that's taken us that way. And it's interesting what people think are long sentences. When I was a prison officer, five years was seen as a very long sentence. Today, most people don't see five years as a long sentence. And in those days, if you got a five-year sentence, you were eligible to apply for parole after a third. So you could be released after a third of your five-year sentence. Um, and today, five years is seen as a... Um, 
uh, not as a long sentence really at all. Um, I remember as a prison officer once being sent into the, the dock at Leeds Crown Court because there were two officers already in the dock, but they were worried about this prisoner who was expecting a long sentence and they were worried about how he might react. And he got a five-year sentence and this was a big man and he basically almost fainted at the length of the sentence. And that was seen, an extra member of staff, because it was a five-year sentence. Um, today, a 10-year sentence is a sort of starting point for many on, as a determinate uh, uh, prisoner. So our understanding of, of uh, what is a long time has changed. And lots of things have changed in society and our expectations have changed in terms of what we expect people to serve for the, for the crimes they commit. Yeah. And also, I think, you know, I constantly think about, well, when I listen to people saying, well, there needs to be a deterrence. And somehow some people out there think that people who might go out and commit a violent crime, they're not thinking in the back of their head, oh, I know all about the sentencing guidelines and what I might get, are they? Um, you know, most people don't read Hansard or even know what Hansard is <laughs> and don't understand legislation and might not know that sentences have increased or the fact that if you're sentenced under joint enterprise and you're just standing near someone who's killed someone that you receive the same sentence as the person who might have had the knife and actually done the killing. So that's a bit of a problem too, isn't it? You know, these longer sentences are not a deterrence. I don't think in terms of deterrence there's much evidence that uh, that the length of a sentence acts as a deterrent to others not to commit a sentence, uh, not to commit a crime. Most of the evidence indicates that it is the potential to be caught that is much greater um, deterrence than than a length of sentence. If you don't think you're going to be caught or you're not thinking, if you're acting spontaneously and just not thinking about what you're doing, then then what a sentence might look like in, uh, once you've been caught is, is not really at the forefront of your mind. And the other thing, even for repeat of offenders, where people want to see prison as a, a de deterrent and to, to see the punishment, uh, meaning that people don't come back. The reality is that it, it often is, uh, in my experience, something, it, it's absolutely something that people don't want. People don't like being in prison. There's a sort of myth, I think, that prisons are, are soft, and that's never been my experience. Um, prisoners don't help themselves today when they get hold of illegal mobile phones and post out things about, oh, we're having a great time. That's all bravado, it seems to me, or it's drug-riven where they've got illegal drugs. But most people come into prison don't want to be there. They don't like it. They don't find it easy. It's why we have so much, so many issues about self-harm, why people have constantly, if they could escape, look to look to do so, why it is that people take sort of mind-numbing drugs if they can get hold of them, like psychoactive drugs. It's not because, you know, prison's a great place to be, it's because actually prison's not a great place to be. And it impacts on people and it impacts on their mental health. Now, inevitably, that's going to be the case if you isolate somebody. It's meant to be something that is not pleasant and it isn't pleasant. Um, but the, the, the reality is people cope with it when they go back out. So often people go back out into similar circumstances from whence they came and they don't want to go back to prison. But it's amazing how your mind moves on from something that's happened previously and that actually you put it at the back of your mind and you're not thinking about it when you go and do something that might get you back there again. I, I did wonder whether or not 
when we had the COVID isolation periods for everyone, that people would begin to appreciate how hard it is to be isolated. Well, that's the thing. We heard that a lot, didn't we? And I'm sure lots of people said to you, it's like, oh, it's like being in prison. And I wonder what you felt about that, because those of us who've worked in prisons, it's like, well, it's not really. (laughs) Of course, it's not in one sense. But the feelings of separation and isolation and being unable to do things are real. And people felt them really. And and I think I thought that was a good thing that people began to think about, oh, what this must be like. And you realise that it's not pleasant and you don't like it. And it's uncomfortable, even when you're in your own house. It feels constraining and lots of people felt that. And particularly where you weren't able to see loved ones and others and you felt really constrained. What's interesting for me, though, is how quickly people then move on once all of that's finished. How quickly you forget about it. You almost forget, oh, but oh, that's only, what, a couple of years ago? But people have moved on in their own minds from what that was like and it's a blur. And that's just like leaving prison as well. You didn't like it when it was happening, but when you're out again, and particularly if you go back to circumstances where you were before and things are around that are tempting you or you can't get away from others who are involved in crime, you end up going back to doing things. Even though you know the consequence previously was something you didn't like, you end up doing it. It's it's a, um, The psychology is, I think, tricky, but it, it isn't the case that if you want deterrence, you just make prison longer or harder because actually that in itself will not deter. There are reasons, I think, for marking in society that this isn't acceptable and sending somebody to prison. I think that 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 that's an appropriate way of demonstrating you know, um, a punishment for serious offending. But the idea that that in itself is going to be a deterrence uh, for folk is not backed at all by any evidence, really. Exactly. And, and what I was going on to say was, you know, this point about what do we want people to be like when they come out the other end? And actually, you know, I guess the metrics for you when you were running the services, well, we don't want people to come back and we want we don't want them to reoffend. But of course, you know, the statistics aren't good, are they? People tend to come out of prison. And certainly if you look at that sort of younger cohort of young men, you know, the reoffending rates are sort of up in their 60s, 70s, last time I checked. So, you know, it's that great argument, isn't it? And the sort of debate, the public debate on what do we want our prisons to be and why? And actually, if we want people to come out calmer and better than when they went in, certain things have to happen to them that might not be palatable to the right wing. Yes. And to be fair, I've rarely met anyone who didn't want um, prison to be uh, both the punishment, but also to try to tackle rehabilitation and try and support people to come out. But there are inevitable um, and difficult um, conflicts in what you're trying to do. If you take the purposes of sentencing, which was set out in the 2003 Act, you've got uh, very clearly and at the top punishment, then you've got public protection You've got reparation, rehabilitation. There's another one which I'll remember in a moment. But there are conflicts between them. And prison has to manage all of that in one place. So the punishment is the coming to prison. So not not letting people escape is, is right, keeping them safe when they're there. Public protection is about actually um, ensuring that, that whilst they're there, they're not able to, to harm uh, the public. Some people being kept for a long time. But... There isn't much reparation, but there's a good deal of um, attempt to try to actually support people towards rehabilitation in our system, certainly compared to, to many systems. Um, but that's that's difficult to do in a circumstance where you're holding people coercively <laughs> to deliver the sentence of the court. 
And it can't be done alone in prison because rehabilitation requires the person who you want to rehabilitate to be accepted back into a society that's going to support them when, they could, when they're back in community. And that's very, very tricky. Um, and I don't think the whole debate about what prison is about, prison has to serve in many senses at multiple purposes. Um, and I would never have wanted to work in a system that didn't have at least some focus on rehabilitation, as well as delivering the sentence of the court, which is a perfectly legitimate thing. It's not wrong to say that, that part of our role in society is to deliver the highest sanction that a court can give and keep a person safe and away from the public for a period. But if that's all we were doing, I would never have wanted to work in prisons. And even at their worst, and even when it, we go through difficulty at times, there is stuff going on in prisons that is trying to help people to begin again. And it's also, of course, you're right about the statistics, particularly for young people. But um, I sometimes get really a little frustrated with the whole thing being pushed back on to prisons. By the time people come to prison, most people have been in touch with the criminal justice system for quite a bit. Of course, you get the you get some people who come first time offence and they come into prison, but that's rare. Most people have had contact with the criminal justice system in various ways. I think an average of three previous sentences before somebody comes to prison is on average what, what you have. They're well down the road to criminality by the time they come into prison. And it's, it should be no great surprise when you take somebody in and into a confined place and then hold them for a period and then send them back very much to the same place that they've come from despite doing work with them when they're there that not everyone changes automatically and they find it hard to change like any addict finds it hard to come off an addiction um, and sometimes I used to like to switch it around if you take the adult male reconviction rate we just said it's around 50% people are reconvicted within within 12 months that means 50% are not and actually sometimes it's worth actually looking at it like that and not thinking that we're anything special because re-offending re rates, which are very difficult to compare between different jurisdictions because people record it differently. What do we actually mean? It's very different. But we're not so out of touch with, with other places. It's very hard once people are down a route to, in, in, uh, to criminality to turn that. Um, it's very, very hard. Um, which is why actually prevention is so important and trying to prevent people getting into the criminal justice system in the first place. Why it's better to deal as far as you can with people in community before you end up in prison. When you come into prison, exactly. why it's better not to have them there for longer than they need to be, because you've got more yeah. chance then to try and work with the person coming back out. And of course, the your best example of where punishment doesn't go is a very old example now, but it was at the time I joined as a prison officer with Billy Whitelaw's Short Sharp Shock, which were detention centres at the time. Um, and fascinating, actually, about where they are at the minute, because detention centres were de demonstrably meant to give a short, sharp shock. Military training to young men coming into prison for the first time for a very short period, so four-month sentences. You come in, you did marching round, round the, uh, the sort of exercise yard, you were drilled, um, and... Uh, those young men who came in through that system had higher reoffending rates than any other group of people who ever come into the prison system. Their reoffending rates went up. It became a badge of, of honour when you went back out. But I've done it. I've done the system. I'm tough because right. I've done it. And and actually, when there was an attempt in the late nineties to sort of 
resurrect that idea. We ended up setting up two different regimes. One was at the old um, military training centre at Colchester. I was involved in that because I was area manager at, 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 in the east of England at the time. And we set up another re regime at Thorn Cross. And both were taking younger people. Both of them, they weren't quite the detention centre regime. The Colchester regime were trying to, uh, to uh, they, they were using military-based staff, but they were uh, attempting to, to um, take the young people and also train them and give them skills. But it was more of a military discipline style regime. And the Thorn Cross regime was less of a military style regime and more of active, lots of active activity during the day, um, lots of PE, but also lots of, uh, of activities. The Thorn Cross was much more successful than the Colchester one. And it's interesting about how these, when you look at these things, what, what people want and say, and then you look at the reality of what actually works, um, it is about actually structured activity support. And then very much, not just what you do in a prison environment, but what happens when the person goes back out. And that's incredibly yeah. important. Yeah, exactly. Um, we obviously, it's well documented, obviously, from the media, the, you know, more recently, the levels of self-harm going up, suicide, you know, we're off the back of COVID, 23-hour lockdowns, you know, it's been, it's been a really bad time. Um, obviously, now as well, I'm sure you'll be aware that um, a lot of the prisons, their, you know, average staff age is sort of below or is in the low 20s, isn't it? Lots of staff now. Some big prisons, 80% of their staff are sort of aged about 22, um, which is causing a real problem. And a lot of young staff not being able to cope and then maybe going on to other jobs within the police force, um, etc. So, so my question to you really is, with that as a backdrop and you knowing the pressures of running these places, how on earth did you managed to sort of keep your sanity and how did you deal with the stress of actually presiding over so many people what is it sort of eight around eighty thousand? it was right when you were running the the prison system you know how did you how did you sort of deal with that on a day-to-day -day basis um i think it helped me having worked in prisons at every level really so I faced my first suicide as a young assistant governor, about 22, 23, um, at Caldingley Prison. And it was a first for everyone there. Uh, Caldingley at the time was run by uh, a wonderful woman called Margaret Donnelly, who was one of the first women governors in male prisons. And, and Caldingley was a, a, an industrial prison. And a, a man killed himself there. Prison officer found him um, really struggled initially having found him uh, hanging and I was on the scene very quickly and everyone was affected by that suicide and I've never forgotten it when you see a death and I've seen several since then you never forget that and I'll never forget how it affected everyone from the governor who was excellent to the, to the officer and the idea that you know people just shrug it off just isn't the case and I remember the chaplain at the time talking about how we cope with this and the responsibility because people felt responsible I mean, the person had taken their own life but actually people felt very how did we let that happen etc and I guess and I've had lots of experiences at of, of things difficult things happening and always my response to that now I'll go back to that one thing is trying as hard as I could to try and do the best you can to prevent 
things such as that happening in the future. Always remembering that it is people that you're dealing with. And that means that when things do go wrong, it can be very hard and you can it can you can take it. But it's also really important when you're trying to run an organization that you don't lose sight of when something goes wrong, it affects lots of people. The, you know, the um so suicide affects I mean, it, it's it's just tragic and it affects it affects prisoners it affects staff obviously the family of the person involved etc and i've had dealings with all of those people those those and what keeps me going through that is you know bad things happen and our job is to try to prevent them and i and it's about actually prevent bad things happening and try to actually do what good you can in difficult circumstances and i've always had that at the forefront of the mind and at, at times it is hard and you can think Gosh, can I take any any more of this? But you've got to separate yourself from what is my role is to try and stop this happening or make it better or improve. Um, and that's always been the driver. And to find a way of maintaining that as a focus while separating to a degree like any professional has to do from the event that's happened and thinking about it in a way that actually you don't lose all your emotion, but you're able to address it as, as far as you can professionally. And I think lots of people in in professions have to do that. They have, you know, nurses have to do that all the time. People in the uh, in any sort of institutional sector, um, even where where there's emotion and things that are difficult, you've got to be able to handle that. And I think the best leaders are able to handle it, recognize the impact, but not allow that impact to affect your professional judgment whilst keeping it keeping it as a motivator if you like to be able to try to do things better and I was able to do that but I I will it is true that the hardest things I've found when I was leading the service difficult as a lot of things were and difficult as a lot of politics were and difficult when you have big things like riots or incidents but probably my worst worst day was was once when I just I had several things that came together and one of them was the death of a 15 year old who killed himself in one of our prisons then a um a prisoner took a member of staff um female member of staff hostage pointing a gun at her uh, and then another prisoner um young young prisoner under 18 killed himself um and i remember thinking at that point just it the inability as well you're being told these things and it is um at that point as well, when you're running the organisation, there's nothing you can do individually in any of the circumstances. Other people are dealing with it. Um, but you feel very accountable and very responsible for it. Um, and, I mean, I, in the end, was able actually to, to, at the right time, to be able to offer some some input to uh, the governors of those prisons. And, again, it helped because I'd been in some of those circumstances. I knew what they were going through. And then you feel you can add a bit of value as well, as well as then trying to do my role, which wasn't to deal with the the immediate aftermath. It was to deal with what what can we do across the system to try and make this better? What is the things that we can do to try and improve um, to prevent this happening? And again, one of the hardest things, I, I remember doing a 10 past eight slot on the Today programme on Radio 4 after a young man had killed himself at Glen Parva and listening first before they were going to interview me at that 10 past eight slot to the mother of the young man who'd killed himself 
and he and to be fair he he shouldn't have been coming into prison he should have been going to a um to some psychiatric support unit he'd been with us for a very short period and killed himself and he, and her, her understandable upset was with the whole system including us but equally about how he'd ever come into a prison in the first place or a young offender place in the first place and if you're not affected by that you really shouldn't be doing the job but you, but what i tried to do was take that impact and try and help it to motivate me to do the job as well as I could to try and improve things. I mean, there's so many challenges, isn't there, within the prison system, but something you just said about he shouldn't have been with us and you just have to cope with who is sent to you. And of course, prisons have changed so much over the past, even just the two decades that I've been in and around them. And and the fact that so many uh, people who actually require sort of mental health treatment in a hospital, and we know the beds just sort of barely exist. So when everything else fails, whether it's education, housing, health, people tend to end up in our prisons now. And then you get the blame for when things go wrong, but then you have the, you likened yourself to sort of, you know, well, nurses and the NHS, but actually I always feel very protective over the prison system too, when all the newspapers then come and pile in and have a go at the system, and the system only takes the people that get sent to them. I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot of truth in that. And the, in resource terms prisons are just not anything like as well resourced as some of the services particularly true i mean when i'm talking about those young young people who killed themselves um and actually we you know it, it's been very it's been very difficult to work out what's the right thing to do with under 18s um and you know, they've been held in prison facilities they've been held in other types of facilities um but the resource differential is huge even when they're in prison and in prison facilities and, and our staff don't have the training that many for example social workers do in local authorities um and i think when we were running the, the, the youth system we were spending more money on the youth system than any other bit of the prison service it was costing about 75 80 000 pounds a year per child per child but yeah. the same place in a local authority care would have been costing 240 pounds and uh, and it's hugely expensive if you want to actually put the um, arrangements in place that young people have. And so somebody in Feltham, which obviously because its numbers are just so much greater than you'd have in a local authority area, it's much cheaper. It's still expensive for prisons. I mean, the average you know prison place was £40,000. So you're talking about double what you'd be spending on an adult. But it's nothing like what you what would have been spent in a, in a local authority care. The same, actually, for the most challenging men in the system that end up being closed supervision centres, which are very expensive for for us, um, probably about, again, about, I don't know what they are now, but they wouldn't be probably coming up to £100,000 a place by the time we, we, we've got all the security and these are people who've killed others in prison or potentially are killing others in prison, etc. But those individuals often have been people who've ended up at some point in a high high secure psychiatric hospital. And again, the differential in cost is just huge from what you would have in a hospital compared to what you'd have in a prison. And often if the hospitals can't cope with those individuals, they'll end up coming back to prison because we are the default, the, the default place. So there is a truth in what, you, what you've just described. In terms of mental health, there's definitely the case that over my career, we've had more and more people who come to us with 
with issues around their mental health. And it's hard. It's been hard um, for many years to try to find places to move them on back into the health system. It's also the case that as drugs have become more and more prevalent in society, lots of people who haven't got a straightforward mental illness, but have got what tend to be terms of sort of dual diagnosis, they have drug-induced psychosis. And we have to deal with an awful lot of that. And of course, as you will be very familiar, that's particularly problematic, the, the issues around mental health and uh, drug addiction, uh, particularly problematic in the uh, women's estates, where self-harming has always been higher um, in terms of the... Um, than, than, um, than in the male estate and has been particularly problematic and that remains the case. You mentioned and we touched on slightly around the politics of all of this and of course prisons shouldn't be political but it's a public service and in my eyes they are all um, very political but I think particularly um, sort of police and the prisons are very very political and um no one's, you know, naive to the fact that justice ministers come and go, prisons ministers come and go. But there did seem a time when you, you know, and I remember being in a meeting with you once and um, lots of meetings we've been in together. But the feeling that ministers were just sort of getting a bit into the detail of what was going on. And when you compare that to sort of the Scandinavian systems, where there's a very healthy separation of um duties could you could you sort of comment <laughs> you're out of the service now so you can say what you want um could you comment on that relationship of the difficulties of politics that are creeping too far into your job yeah i, I d you can't avoid the politics and in one sense it's right and i it's good that we live in a democracy it's good that ministers who are responsible for a prison system have to account for that to Parliament. I think I should start with that point. I think that is a good thing, and we shouldn't um, we, we shouldn't think that it would be better with that not the case. Then there's been throughout our time in this country a huge sort of debate about how much its ministers were directly accountable for all of the things that happen in prisons, and how much can be the responsibility of others. And in the nineties, the the whole idea of setting up agency status initially under Derek Lewis, which which ended up in a real issue with Michael Howard about who was responsible for what. But the idea of an agency was that there was some separation to allow operational things to happen and ministers take responsibility for policy. It's never easy to make that distinction uh, because whatever happens in a prison becomes of public interest. So I, I think that that is a it's difficult. And I, I think there is a it's important that there is a public accountability. However, it is the case also, I would say, that over the last, well, as I say, ministers have always had a direct involvement in prisons, but I think there's been more and more desire to become more involved in the operational management of prisons day to day, rather than just the setting, the direction and the policy. Um, and I don't think that is awfully helpful, not least when you have so many changes of ministers uh, so quickly. And and therefore, the direction can change so quickly. And that's true in policy, but it also becomes the case in, in terms of sort of the operational day-to-day -day expectations. I think they don't always recognise how difficult it is for governors, for example, to switch when the, when the ethos switches. So 
I, I would say this, that sometimes the, the changes in direction and approach, um, it doesn't matter necessarily about the party political issues. It, you can have as big as swings and changes between ministers from the same party as you can between parties. So I would say there was less of a switch between Jack Straw and Ken Clark in direction of the way prisons were being run in terms of the expectation was than there was between Ken Clark and Chris Grayling, who came with a very different agenda, a much harsher, tighter, wanted to see um, prisons run to a, a much tighter and, and, if you like, a more openly tougher regime, if you like. And again, you had a big switch from Chris Grayling to Michael Gove, who saw things very differently. And governors are in the middle of all that, trying to actually say, how do we, how do we meet the ministerial expectation? And you go from a, a Michael Gove, which was much more about giving governors individual autonomy, to then a switch back towards having much greater, under Liz Trust, and then onwards having much greater sort of um, organisational direction about what you expect. And the Rory Stewart, every prison should be run in the same way, um, on a, on more on greater military lines, and not understanding that actually, not you know, not not very long before, the previous Secretary of State was looking for governors to individually take take authority and run their prisons individually yeah. so actually we now want everything to be run very differently and that those are hugely challenging now part of my role you know and I wasn't I was in the role as you know chief exec for a long time um surviving somehow a whole real host of ministers but part of my role was to try and provide a degree of clarity and continuity through that as a head of service um, and a civil servant, my responsibility was to deliver government policy. I was privileged enough to be able to argue with ministers and try to shape that, but then a responsibility to try to deliver it um, and operationally to try to keep things balanced and as far as we could in a direction which governors were able to, to work to. Um, not going against ministers, but trying to make whatever direction that they were they were seeming to be more workable. Just to jump in there, it strikes me as an incredibly dysfunctional way to run something, just to be blunt. In the private sector, you know, if you sort of take the chief executive of a, a big um, sort of profit-making company, you know, the stability is in, right, we're here, we're going in that direction, this is where we want to get to, everyone pulls in the same direction, and off we go, whereas... <laughs> Obviously, in our line of work, it's like, oh, we're going over here. Now we're going over here. Now you need to do this. Now you need to do that. I mean, you know, you wouldn't even expect that from the headmaster or headmistress of a school. You know, if that kind of thing was happening and there was a churn like we see with the ministers, you'd be like, this is clearly a very dysfunctional school. And I'm going to remove my children out of it immediately. Well, that's that's fair. And I would have I would love to have had the opportunities given to the, the head of the Swedish service, for example, where there effectively there's a very clear direction set, agreed in Parliament, and a budget set. And then the Director General of the Swedish system is given a three-year opportunity to deliver the, the direction that's been set with pretty um, wide operational freedom to do that. That is something I would have loved to have had because... And, and I remember talking... If you take the whole issue, which actually affects probation more rather than prisons, but... Um, the transforming rehabilitation uh, uh, policy that, that Chris Grayling brought in at the behest of uh, the Prime Minister at the time, I have to say, which was about payment by results. I remember talking to the then um, 
non-exec lead for the Ministry of Justice who'd come from the private sector, who said, well, surely permanent by results, I, I can see that, but that not that a tool that you would use as the chief executive to try and get better outcomes? And in one sense, he's absolutely right. But instead, that was the policy. The policy was implement a system that had payment by results at its heart, which was became the transforming rehabilitation agenda, because there was a, a view that that was the way to drive improvement. Whereas for a businessman, he was saying, surely what they should be tasking you of is the improvement they want and allowing you some tools to do it. And he was right, wasn't he? Because also it, it didn't work. It didn't work. There, there are a whole range of reasons why it didn't work. It might have had a better chance if we'd have had longer to implement it, if we'd have had a chance to run community rehabilitation companies for a year before transferring them to the private sector. Um, if actually we'd been able to put some more money into the contracts because they didn't have enough money to run the things properly. And it's no surprise that all that didn't work. I mean, one of the things I was pleased about is that we did win the argument to to retain a, a, a public sector provision, the National Probation Service. There was an argument at the time for outsourcing everything. I'm glad that we won the argument not to do that. I'm glad the National Probation Service was retained because that's allowed an ability to be able to step in, which was my argument all along for retaining when you needed to retain some expertise in the public sector, even if you're outsourcing, because you need people to understand how the thing works. The rationale of course, for payment by results is you can't do that in the public sector. You had to outsource. And because if the if the ideal is that you want to do a payment by results regime, then that can't be managed in, in the in the public sector because you have to pay anyway to the public sector. <laughs> and in one sense, you know, the madness of it is that it, it didn't work. Um, we didn't get the results. They weren't as bad as we didn't get the improvement wanted, but they weren't we weren't terrible, but we certainly didn't pay anything like as much as we'd anticipated we would pay. Um, and and actually, some of the private sector companies actually took losses. So that they actually sub losses means they subsidised some of the work that was going on in the in the public sector. But it it was driven by the ideology of payment by results, not by right what we want is reductions in reoffending or greater public protection. What's the best way of achieving that on the evidence base? And that actually, we have had times when that was much more the case. The early 2000s was much more evidence-driven. Uh, and we did make some small gains in doing that, but that was about ideology. And it, it changed and really created significant um, trauma for the probation service going through the whole of those changes. Yeah, which we're still seeing um, the sort of scars from and sort of living through today, aren't we? The other problem that you must have had was if you really wanted to challenge a minister, you know, ultimately you had to be very careful of them not wanting to get rid of you, I imagine. So I'm sure there were times where you're like, I actually want to blow my lid here because this is two bananas, but I can't really be too strident about it. I mean, there are occasions when I've, um, I've been very frustrated by what ministers wanted to do, but not really an occasion where I've not felt I couldn't go I wouldn't go and tell them if I didn't agree with something. Yeah, because quite frankly, you know, you're you're the expert. You know, you get these ministers in who are sort of learning on, on the job and, uh, you know, they've never probably thought about prisons before or certainly never been in one and suddenly they're in charge of telling you what to do. So that dynamic, I imagine, sort of can be quite frustrating if they're trying to sort of overrule something that you're saying as an expert. Don't do that because it's a bad idea. Good ministers work with their with their officials, if you want to call it like that. And I had an advantage as uh, an operational head of prison and probation service in that 
um, no one could really challenge my operational expertise and background. Um, they did, but in one sense, I had got knowledge, and people did acknowledge the fact that I got knowledge of the system. Um, there's always a tendency for people to want to go wider than the person who's meant to be their main uh, main advisor. That's perfectly understandable. So ministers would try and get quite reasonably a range of different views about what should be going on. You know, am I telling them the right thing? Am I part of the problem? That's perfectly uh, appropriate and right. Although sometimes I did get a bit frustrated when they go to governors about to, to and tell me that governors thought this could work without recognising that I was once a governor. I do understand a bit about how the prisons would work themselves. But that's fair enough. But the, the strength, of course, is I had no desire. I, I, didn't, I never regarded myself as a generalist civil servant. I didn't join the civil service to be... Um, to become a permanent secretary or to work around wider areas of government. I joined the Prison and Probation Service to work with um, uh, with, with prisoners, with probation, uh, those on probation. I, I, I wanted to work in the criminal justice world. And because of that, I felt very secure about the area I was responsible for, about I, had, I, I, I knew it. Um, I had no ambition to go further, so once I, you know, I wasn't seeking to get to, to move on. So I felt confident about standing up to ministers if I think if I felt things were wrong, I was prepared to do that. And most of them, to be absolutely fair, wanted that and respected that. Most ministers want you to be straight with them. And I, I said because of the particular uh, operational nature of our work, and there aren't many aspects of government where ministers are responsible for direct operational delivery of services. And, um, and and we're the biggest bit in government of doing, you know, of that. It's a large operational service and almost all ministers do recognise you do need people who actually understand how that operates. And it's different to health where you've got, you know, there's a separation. Trusts are not directly accountable to ministers in the same way that I was directly accountable. And even the police, I mean, they're, they're, Politics are now much more geared towards their police and crime commissioners than they are to, to central government. Whereas, so th- we were a, we were pretty unique and different in terms of that. But um, part of my role yeah. was to trying to try to speak to ministers honestly, and I tried to do that as far as much as I could. Yeah, well, I think you in the main did a did a sterling job. I often watched you on Parliament TV being grilled by Sir Bob Neill and uh, and other ministers. Um, but what I wanted to ask you is, you know, it's very easy to concentrate on the bad, isn't it? Because you know, there's lots of challenges. But what got you out of bed in the morning, and why why did you sort of love it so much? And what are the happy memories that you have of running the service? I mean, I'd said earlier, and I really mean it. I I was so lucky to have a role where you genuine. I genuinely believed every day you're doing something that really matters, that makes a real difference to people's lives, and where I personally could have an impact. And through my whole career, both at a as a prison officer, as a manager in a prison, as a prison governor, working headquarters, there wasn't a day that went by that I thought, actually, I'm not able to do something that's making making a real impact on on people's lives and that genuinely is what drove me and i missed that actually it's also true to say that um, there are a lot of things that go wrong but there are a lot of dedicated people who work in the world of prisons and probation and um, a lot of people in probation would rightly say they're vocational and i think that's true 
Many fewer people would say that in prisons, but there's a lot of vocational people in prisons. You can see the dedication of people trying to make things work in really difficult circumstances. In every prison you go to, there are people who are like that. And that is massively motivating. You know, and I had the, the you know, the, the joy when I was running the service, you know, generally on a Friday, um, I would be in a prison somewhere or in a probation area somewhere with staff. And I, I that wasn't about being, I, I would immerse myself in the place. I, want, I was went into prisons with my own keys, went where I wanted in that prison, talked to staff at the level that they were at in their own areas. Um, that was always motivating. And, and there was success, uh, you know, for most of my career, for 30 years, for the 36 years, well, 30, 31 years of the 36 years I, I worked, I was involved in, we had our ups and downs, but generally the direction of travel was improving things we were doing for the public, for the prisoners, for others. I genuinely believe that, that there is no comparison of prisons today, as difficult as things are, to where they were in the 1980s. Rightly, I mean, we've <laughs> we're several years on from that. They should be a lot better. So that's not a great, but but actually, particularly around the whole decency agenda, the Martinari, Phil Wheatley, hold of that, the fact that we treat people as much more as individuals, the fact there isn't systemic abuses that certainly occurred through the 80s and into the 90s. That's not to say there is an abuse. It does happen. It doesn't say that things don't go wrong. It does. But actually, it's a much better managed and organised um, service in prisons than it, than it was then. And we have put a focus much more on the importance of trying to support individuals to change and on um, rehabilitation. And even through the, the last five years, because well, I said I've done 31 years improving and I spent five years trying to hold on to as much improvement as possible during a time of huge cuts. And we have to be honest about that. I And that's not pleasant. I mean, <laughs> I don't take any great pride at all in terms of saying, you know, I, in, there's no question in 2010 when I took over the uh, uh, service from Phil Wheatley, it was in a better place than when I left it in 2019. That's very hard to be able to take. But in mitigation, I did have £893 million of cuts, 23% of the budget, 10,000 staff. Um, eventually, we got some yeah. of those back towards the end. And uh, But we did, I did make, this, make sure that we concentrated on keeping the system going as far as we could. And we didn't lose a focus on the individuals, the values, the... We, we even went down the road really trying to take um, the whole desistance theory and turn that into rehabilitative culture, reality for people in prisons. Um, and that was still happening. We, there were, Lisa Appleyard, who was my communications head at one time, started a, um, a project which we called the Changing Lives Campaign in the middle of the most difficult time when we were losing staff and, and actually really struggling. And I didn't think this was going to really work, but you know, our strapline was... Um, preventing victims by changing lives, which I think is still a strapline. I'm quite pleased about that. Um, and we had this changing lives campaign, and the idea was that staff would just put a, a sort of billboard on them, take a selfie, and say how they're ch changing lives. And I thought staff would take to that, but they did. And through this period, we had so many positive responses about what they were doing to change lives. And that was in the midst of all the difficulty that we were having through the 2016, 2017 times where we'd had difficulties, disturbance, losing staff. 
And that was true across probation as well as prisons, and they've been going through the terrible difficulty of transforming rehabilitation, the separation of the services. And, you know, there was just so much good going on in the middle of all that. That's what keeps you really motivated. Exactly. And I think that's an important point to make as well, isn't it? You know, it's not just about uh, the prisoners, the victims on the outside and the families and friends, but ultimately, you know, prisons are full of people that work there. And sometimes, you know, I get very sort of frustrated at um, the probation system as well. You know, they're very invisible systems, unlike the police and you see them out and about in their cars and their uniforms. And and I think sometimes that's why prisons and probation are sort of forgotten about because they're sort of, you know, more, more in the dark, aren't they? Um, and sometimes I do feel that, you know, prison officers, because they're not seen so much, that they don't get enough um, credit for the incredible work that they do, actually. Um, which is a shame and not not enough of the good is talked about because there are obviously so many challenges but I think it's a shame that we don't sort of celebrate the good the good that goes on because of course as soon as you say something good is going on in a prison then you get the Daily Mail sort of raging sort of saying how dare you look like you're smiling or having a good day. (laughs) And and to be fair I, I remember David Ludington being saying to me that he thought I was far too cautious about wanting to to praise the sort of good that was going on at a national level and it, it was nice to have that challenge really um because uh, he's right to a degree because sometimes i was particularly cautious about trying to promote the good we were doing in the middle of really difficult times when i knew that particularly the national press just wanted to go for the difficult stories my view was though the way to promote that is locally because at a local level you can get a lot of good stories coming out about prisons and i was always keen on having openness even in the difficult times having media and others coming in to see what's going on and the see, letting the public see some of the reality of what goes on in prisons because it is different to what they anticipate now there's some challenge with that particularly when we'd have fly on the wall series through some of our more difficult times but even that it was worth people seeing how difficult it was for folk and i think that 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 on the whole the transparency and openness is a better policy for people and people come to appreciate more what the staff do the staff generally come out really well when people see what's going on in a prison environment or certainly in a probation uh, environment which again is more difficult sometimes at least with a prison there's a physical entity and you can go in whereas a lot of the probation work is done one-to-one and it's much harder to get underneath what brilliant work they can be doing with individuals when they're doing that so finally um I imagine in two years time we'll have a different government and I wondered now that you've had a bit of time away from uh, the job whether you have any views I'm sure you do on where you'd like to see the service going so forget that we're going into another time of austerity it seems and that there'll probably be more cuts to come put that to one side what do you hope for the prison service over the next 10 to 20 years what would you like to see? I'd like to see, first of all, a serious, proper public debate and understanding on sentencing. So the work that the Independent Commission on um, the Meaning of Sentencing, led by Bishop James Jones, did, I think is really important. And what it calls for, its first recommendation, is a proper debate, a review of the sentencing framework, suggests a citizens' assembly to look at what sentencing should really be. And I, I think that is important because I can't see any any way that we will have um, changes to ever-increasing length of sentences unless 
there is some form of public understanding and debate. And I have to accept it. If that is the case, and then sentencing the public, and there is a proper informed debate, the reason I want that is because generally when I've met with groups of people and you go through the reality of what sentencing does, you get a very different outcome than when you when people um, just take a, an immediate view uh, from the things they've read in the press. So I would like to see a system where effectively sentencing is ratcheted down, where the quality of imprisonment is significantly ratcheted up. And that would come by getting rid of crowding. There's 20,000 people still in crowded conditions in our prisons. That's not really acceptable. And any funding we've had to improve the quality of the fabric of prisons has been lost to pay for everyday um running costs up to now, but we need to address it. We need to provide decent quality prisons for the number that we have, which I'd like to be lower because I'd like the sentencing review to end up with fewer people in prison. But whatever the number, we should be holding people in conditions in this century which are designed for the right number of people. And we should be significantly increasing the amount of structured activity that they can have. I mean, one of the reasons you have all the issues about regimes is that from the 1990s onwards, we've never funded regime to the same level as we've, after we've funded prison places. We've coped with the increase in prison population. And certainly for a period through the late 90s um, and early 2000s, when prisons were being built without the, the level of regime that they needed. And, um, and we doubled you know, we doubled the size of prisons without quite doubling the, the amount of activity places. And that begins to to really tell. So I want to see um, preferably a smaller prison population. Um, I, I want to see the end of crowding, better, uh, better physical facilities, better activity. And I do actually think that somehow, um, even though these are never easy things to achieve, there will have there there will have to be something over the next few years that does address this because the mounting problem of the poor physical environment will boil over again into something that would be akin to what we had in 1990 yeah, it feels like we're not far from it actually from what I've been seeing but I also wanted to ask um quickly about imprisoning people for non-violent sentences would that be something you know with the privatization of probation and then the renationalization you know it's, there's a lot of people particularly women who don't get community sentences because actually you know the landscape out there looks very different and sort of rather barren these days so do you think yes. that's um a sort of something that should be fixed prison should absolutely be last resort and i think particularly true for women because there's a disproportionate number of women who could be given community sentences or alternatives to a prison sentence end up in prison. I recognise it's difficult for magistrates where you've got offenders who repeat offending, even though they've been given community sentences. I recognise that. But actually, prison is rarely the, the uh, answer to that. So we've got to be more innovative about thinking about what is the right answer for people who are non-violent but are irritants to 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 society and are unable to stop low-level um, crime but 
crime which does affect people's lives. So there does need to be a response to it. But prison isn't always the right response. It doesn't actually solve the problem. It's a short term respite at best very often. So, yes, I think we need to be looking at what more we can do on the women's population. It's I mean, one of the things that I was really upset about reading was the 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 plan to build more women's places. Yes, which, by the way, goes against the government's own strategy where they said they were going to reduce the number. Can't make it up. And in traditional style. So it's not even about trying to find new ways of of dealing with women who end up in custody. But um, that that does seem to me to be just um, a madness in terms of how we're going. There was a consensus about reducing the number of women in prison. There's an ability to do that. Um, there are women who need to be in prison. There is a growing number of longer sentence women. We shouldn't uh, pretend that's not the case, but it is also the case that there's a significant number of women who don't need to be in prison where alternatives could be there. And there was a consensus about that and a direction. And um, One of the reasons for closing Holloway, as well as to take £70 million for the site, which was part of our... our, But one of the genuine reasons was that the conditions there were not what you'd want for women today, five-bed dorms, and because actually we had capacity to close that prison, which was symbolically important because that was the direction that we were going, which was to reduce the number of women in custody, which meant we'd need fewer places. I mean, to be building more prisons, having closed Holloway is just, just not what I had in mind at all at the time. Yeah, cloud cuckoo land. Um, Michael, I mean, I could carry on asking you questions for hours, um, but I just want to say thank you so much. It's been great to be able to just very briefly look back over your career and get some words of wisdom maybe for some ministers as we go forward into the next few years and whatever they might hold. But hopefully we will one day end up with a system that all of us can be sort of really proud of that um, works really well. Thanks, Irina. It's a, I'm very happy to to talk to you, not least because of the support that you've given to the work that we do for so long. And One Small Thing as a charity, a wonderful uh, conception. And um, and we talk about actually seeing things that some of the work, the trauma-informed work, for example, that's made a real difference to people's lives. Um, I know that you do that because you care about how, about the people that are in prison, about their victims, about where you can make a difference. That's what I did the job for. That's why I've come on today, because I recognise that you two want to see things better, and I'm grateful for that. Well, thank you very much. Links relevant to this episode. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also, rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.